And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Visit DirecTV.com. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to Front and Nationwide. This is the Athletics' dedicated Blue Jackets podcast. Aaron Portson with you on a Tuesday morning. Allison Lucan is here. Good morning. We have another special guest for you. Fans in Columbus, Ohio will remember this man fondly as the Blue Jackets' second general manager. 2007 to 2013. Uh, Scott Housen was the VP of Player Development until recently. I think he may still technically be. We'll get to that. He is the next president and CEO of the American Hockey League. A big job, an interesting job. I can't wait to talk to him about this. Scott Housen, thanks for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, you are a proud Columbus resident still, yeah? Yes, we uh, when I when I rejoined the Oilers in 2013, my wife Antoinette and I decided that we were going to no matter what happened with my career, we were going to stay here and let the kids graduate. We loved it here and uh, still love it here. And uh, the last one's graduating high school uh, on coming up this Sunday, so uh, we are free now. And so uh, the timing is good for me to uh, switch jobs, and we'll be able to move to Springfield, Mass, and sometime in the near future. That was my next question. So you, this job does require you to live there at the AHL, near the AHL headquarters in Springfield. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. Um, Scott, how did this job come to pass? So, I mean, this job has not been available for 26 years. AHL presidents are like Steelers head coaches. They just don't change. <laughs> um, Dave Andrews was there, I think, 26 years. How did this job come to pass, and how unique is it to be starting? Everything's unique right now, but to be starting a new job at this time, uh, how did you get here, and, and what are the challenges you're facing as, as we speak today? 
Yeah, well, Dave has left quite a legacy. He, he, as you mentioned, he was in the position for 26 years. and He's been talking about retiring for three or four years now, uh, maybe five years even. So I knew the job was on the horizon. It was going to become available at some point. But uh, the AHL board, he was doing such a great job and he had good energy and, and, and wanted it. And, you know, so they kept convincing him to stay. Uh, on a year-by-year -year basis. But finally, last May, uh, a year ago, uh, right around this time, he announced that this the upcoming season would be his last, and they would put a search committee uh, together uh, to uh, to try and find the next president CEO. So I knew the job was coming up. Uh, they sent out a sort of an industry-wide email in October inviting applications. Uh, I applied, uh, and then I was one of the I think there were seven people that got initial interviews. Uh, that was, I think, sometime in early December. Uh, they asked for written submissions, and then I did an interview in front of the search committee, which consisted of about seven people. And then, um, and then I waited and heard back. Well, actually, I heard back right away that I was still in, in the running, but then I waited another, a good, another five or six weeks before they decided to conduct second interviews. And at that point, it was just down to two people. Uh, again, another written submission, and they almost gave, they gave a case study. They, they asked six or seven questions, and you went and presented before the search committee. I did that, and then uh, about a week later, they called me and said they'd like me to come in again, and I was the only one they were talking to, and then we came to an agreement uh, early February. So it was, a, it was a detailed process. It was a long process. Uh, it was thorough, and uh, I was uh, certainly glad to be the last one standing. Little did we know that, as you just mentioned, Aaron, that uh, what we'd be facing, what we'd all be facing yeah. in the current climate, um, it's not how uh, I envisioned starting, but uh, there's lots of challenges ahead. Uh, we canceled the season about a week ago. Um, Dave canceled the season a week ago, and now we've pivoted and turned to 2021 season, and there's so many unknowns uh, about that, but we're modeling our schedules uh, and uh, right now we're planning to play the full schedule October 9th to April 18th is what our schedule runs scheduled to run for next year uh, but we'll have models up that might have if, if we can't start in, in October we'll try we'll have a model for November December January and we'll just uh, have trigger points and move on to the next one and uh, so that those are those are the main challenges right now just making sure the league's sustainable the teams are sustainable uh, I'm optimistic we're going to play. I just, I'm just not sure when. Yeah. It's often been said, um, rather cut and dried, that the, if there are no fans, there is no AHL because that league is so heavily driven by, by ticket sales. Not, you don't have a huge TV deal. Um, do, is it too simplistic to say, Scott, that if this – if our, this pandemic, if our situation in this country isn't fixed to the point where fans can can gather that the AHL can't or won't start, is that too simplistic? I think that's a little simplistic. Uh, by and large, you're right. Our league is a gate-driven league. Um, we don't have a big TV deal, and, and I think some of our teams would certainly find it extremely difficult to, to play a, a full season without uh, people in the stands. Having said that, we've got 19 of our 31 teams are owned by NHL uh, teams. And as you all both know, we're, we're the primary development league for the NHL. And a lot of these teams are going to want their players to play. So there's going to be a balancing of interest. I, I think that uh, we're, we're modeling now for, you know, 100% uh, 
capacity or 50% or 35%. We're gauging what teams are interested and, uh, and whether they're sustainable. And, and, and we'll just have to figure it out as we go. We'll have to be flexible. We'll have to be nimble. And, uh, and we'll have to support the teams. Uh, we've talked about supporting teams that maybe want to play with nobody in the, in the stands for a while. Well, let their young players play. Uh, before we can start up with fans. So there's all kinds of scenarios uh, being discussed, and we're in the process of doing all that, getting the feedback from teams uh, and, and really thinking about what models will and won't work. So is it bigger? So you said 17 teams are owned by NHL? There's, there's, there's 19 of the 31 that are owned by Nine. NHL teams, but two of those teams uh, – um, are operated by sort of an independent owner. They lease the teams from the NHL. So in effect, there are 17 teams that are completely controlled by uh, the NHL teams and 14 that are uh, controlled by an independent operator. Okay. And is it right to say that the, those 17 teams could be supported or helped significantly by their NHL teams? It's figuring out how the rest of the league continue to operate without uh, maybe that financial backing? Is that, is that the real challenge? Well, I think, I think, I, I, I mean, I don't want to speak for the 17 teams, um, but uh, you know, there'd be some teams there that would want to play uh, no matter what I would think, because development is just so crucial to them. Um, and, uh, and, and there'd be other, maybe there'd be some independent teams uh, that would have an NHL affiliate. You'll have a Columbus situation. They have a, they don't own the team. Uh, Cleveland, uh, the, the, the NBA team owns the team, and maybe they'd, they'd work something out where they both share and, and want to play. Those things are all being uh, discussed and have to be discussed, and, and, and it's going to change. It's gonna, we don't know what we're going to know in next week, let alone two months from now. So, uh, we have, like I said, we have to be flexible. We have to be willing to adapt and, uh, and, and find out what's going to work for our league. Scott, I was curious, you know, it's taking on a new job can look different depending on the job. And in this case, b before the COVID-19 crisis, I mean, Dave was going to be there for a while. Did you have kind of a vision of how your transition would go, being able to still bounce ideas off him and have him there? And, and has that changed at all, given what you guys are dealing with now? Well, the original plan, I mean, I started with the AHL officially on May 1st. Um, and there was going to be a two-month transition, and we're in, in the middle of that transition. You know, I would have been going to Calder Cup playoff games. We would have had a, a spring meeting in Chicago in early May. Uh, there would be some other commitments that we would have to do together. We would have spent a lot of time together, and we would have transitioned uh, myself uh, to take over on July 1st. Dave is going to stay with the league. That was uh, – that was uh, he had a written contract before that, a three-year uh, contract where he was going to stay as an advisor. So I'm really happy and grateful that he's going to do that, especially in these times. We're going to rely on his experience and his uh, his institutional knowledge, some of the knowledge that I don't have um, to, to try and help us get through this. So I, I guess it's changed, but it hasn't changed. He's going to be around and he's going to be a resource for me as we move forward and try and find the, the right way that, to, to make this league work for 2021. Yeah, that's got to be crazy. I mean, is it, it? Are there things that you're excited to make your own as well? Of course, with full marks and respect to the work that Dave has done all these years. But is it? Are you going to want to see this become something that you evolve as well and and take the AHL into a direction that that 
reflects a little bit of Scott Housen's touch down the road? Well, that was the plan, and that yeah. is the plan. I think it's going to, going to be delayed uh, a little bit. Um, I mean, Allison, I think I was uh, looking forward to doing the two-month transition and then really taking the next five or six months and getting to know the job because I, mm -hmm. I'm, I know that you know it's easy to look at from the outside, but until you get in and live something, and experience the day-to-day -day and, uh, you know, talk to the staff. We have a staff of uh, 16 people there and get to know them and get to know what they do. And, and, uh, and so I was, I, and, then, and then I could sort of develop my plan and my strategy and, and figure out where we wanted to take the league. I think that's delayed a little bit uh, because we're just so focused on making sure that we do the right thing for 2021. But eventually, yes, I will develop my own strategy and uh, want to take the league and, in some new and different directions and hopefully uh, grow on what Dave's built. I don't know how much is inside baseball, but you mentioned case studies as part of your interview request. You know, the AHL has some, some creative and different challenges than the NHL, right? Like, I mean, we even see San Antonio teams move, teams refuse to give back trophies. I mean, there's all kinds of crazy <laughs> stuff that happens. Is, is that exciting? Is it, I mean, is kind of a little bit of the crazy, a little bit more fun in some ways? Yeah, I think so. I think, I think, I mean, I think Dave, I mean, I think he's seen in his 26 years, he's seen over 200 uh, location and or uh, ownership changes. So things that evolve quickly. Uh, I think we're getting a little more stable uh, ever since, I guess, the big, one of the, you know, high water marks was when the uh, NHL instituted the salary cap and the teams became NHL teams became pretty focused on development. Mm -hmm. Development became extremely important because no longer could the teams with the most money buy their way out of problems. And they could, you know, some of those teams, I don't want to say they ignored development, but they certainly didn't place a premium on it. And, and now I don't think you get sustainable success in the National Hockey League without uh, a really good develop, drafting and development system. So that was, uh, uh, we were the benefactors of that in the, NA, in the AHL. So I think we're a little more stable, but there's certainly, uh, more room to try things and and to, and to try and give uh, the fans uh, some fun where where our price point is completely different in terms of getting into the building so that lends itself to uh, trying some more things and, and we appeal to uh, a slightly different audience obviously you mentioned the development too with the NHL focus what is that relationship like that you as you see it now between the two leagues and, and maybe a little bit more on how that's evolved well I've just been since I've started here uh, in the last few weeks, I've seen how close we are with the NHL. Uh, Dave talks to Bill Daly, um, you know, two, three, four times a week. I don't think he talks to him that much during the year, but with what's going on and, and uh, with us, you know, canceling our season last week, we were, we were in communication with the uh, NHL all along about, you know, when's the best time for us to, to, uh, to make this announcement to even decide uh, we are an independent league. We're independent from the NHL, but like I said, we have 19 owners. So the ties are close and, uh, and the NHL is our lifeblood. I mean, we, that's, that's, that's the decision Dave made about, uh, you know, 20 years ago, he decided that we were going to be the development league and we put some rules in place. At that time we had a competitor in the, in, in the international hockey league and they went a different direction and it ended up, uh, it ended up being a really, wise decision uh very savvy by dave and the board uh and and then i think in 2001 we brought six teams in you know, over the in from the ihl to uh to really become the only 
trip in, in effect, triple A league in hockey. And, uh, and so to answer your question, we're going to continue to work closely with the NHL. Uh, we want to make sure that, that we're the right partner for them. And uh, we serve the needs of the NHL and their teams. Scott, why did it take so long for NHL teams to figure out the benefits of having an AHL affiliate near them? Like Columbus had teams in Syracuse, Springfield, um, the Cincinnati, your beloved Cincinnati Reds, their minor league team was in Denver one year, the AAA team. Like they used to be all over the place. What, what was the impetus toward teams wanting their affiliates near and now cross-marketing, the convenience of having a team close where you can, you can call up a player and you can be there in two hours driving in some cases? What, do you know what, what sparked that and, and why it, what seems obvious now, why it took so long to, for that to come to bear? Yeah, I, I think I think it's basically about control, and uh, you mentioned cross marketing. There's certainly some business reasons, but I think the primary reason was about control and having those players close. Uh, you know, because teams started to place such a premium on development, they wanted the players close, and they wanted to be uh, have some a little more control over them. Uh, you know, and and in the salary cap world. Sometimes just saving a day's salary can can mm-hmm. be all the benefit of the world, and and I know in Edmonton over the last five or six years we had our team in Oklahoma City. So, you know, Whew. the rule really is if you call a player up after five o'clock and he starts traveling, you don't pay. He doesn't count against the salary cap for that day. Yeah. But that was difficult to do, and when someone was flying from Oklahoma City to Edmonton because you couldn't get him there for practice the next day if you had a game. So um, I think it was cost savings a little bit there and, and, and control. And, 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 you know, I, there's a lot of teams now, and we just saw Vegas purchase San Antonio. They're going to put, like Toronto, uh, like Montreal, uh, like San Jose, they're going to put the team right in their own city. So they have uh, both teams uh, right under, uh, not in the, under the same roof, but within sure. 10, 15 minutes of each other. That was unheard of. 20 years ago. And this is, this is weird, but when I covered the Clippers, the AAA team of the Yankees, there were the mindset then was that you did not want your minor league team near your major league team because you wanted the minor league guys, and this, this, sounds, this is almost unfathomable now, you wanted them to focus on the task at hand, not have uh, information readily available about what was going on at the major league level. And that, that sounds strange, but back, you couldn't get an out-of-town newspaper in some places. You couldn't watch ESPN and get daily updates all the time. There wasn't the internet, obviously. So the players, the minor league players were sort of isolated from the major league players, and they wanted that to be part of the, part of the AAA experience. In other words, this is part of the, the, um, the reason you want to get to the bigs is you want to get away from this, do you recall that being an element to having teams far away from their major league affiliate? I don't, I don't recall that as much in hockey. What I do recall is making sure, uh, and this doesn't sound very good either, but making sure that the minor leaguers that you, you sort of touched on it, the minor leaguers, the eight people in the AHL knew that they were in the AHL and right. <laughs> they wanted to get out of the AHL. So uh, when we had our affiliate in Hamilton and you, you get off the bus at five in the morning after playing in Albany one night and have to play that night at home, you know, you're in the AHL. That doesn't happen uh, in the NHL. So you wanted certainly your players to be motivated to, uh, to get out of there and, and to, and to go up that, but I don't, I don't 
recall the isolation as much. I think it just stemmed from the fact that the league was really, you know, it grew out of the Northeast and uh, mm -hmm. the Springfields, the New Haven uh, teams, Providence, uh, Rochester, uh, Syracuse was an old AHL team. Um, so it sort of, it was, that's where they were located. So that's where you, that's where the affiliates were. Yeah. I remember you would get up, uh, you know, late morning cause it was baseball and there'd be a line of players to the gift shop to buy the USA today, just to go to the transactions in the big, yeah. they wanted to see what happened. It was, it was, yeah. kind of, it's, it's hard to even think in those terms anymore. Uh, Scott, you are remembered, I think fondly by most in Columbus, Ohio. How fondly do you remember your time with the blue jackets, your Columbus experience? It was, Six years, seven seasons, something like that. It was a, a pretty good run uh, in the in the NHL. Uh, look back, if you would, for us on your time here. Well, I mean, I we we fell in love with the city for sure, um, and uh, you know the, the people that I got to work with in Columbus, from um, Mr. McConnell and then John P. and Mike Priest. Uh, you know, I enjoyed every minute of it. Um, uh, I, I always wish I could have done better. And uh, the team could have done better. Uh, but uh, as I look back now, uh, you know, I'm quite proud of the work that we did here uh, with Chris McFarlane and Don Boyd and, and the coaching staffs. And, and I felt like, uh, you know, I left, certainly left the team in a better place. And mm -hmm. uh, I think that sort of was proven out as, uh, as Yarmo took over and, and the team took off. He's done a wonderful job. Him and JD did a wonderful job. And, and John Tortorella, but I think that they had some nice pieces to build off of. And uh, so that's what I'm most proud of. Yeah. Um, I think back to the 08-09 season and the first taste of the playoffs. Where does that rank for you and just your memories of how, how exciting that was for the city, but just how meaningful it was for so many people to finally have experienced that? Yeah, I think of two distinct memories in that. One, when we clinched in Chicago was a yes. very emotional time. Um, to see uh, us, I think the game, I think we won in a shootout, but I think we only needed one point to clinch. That's correct, yeah. And uh, when, that, when that game ended in regulation and we had the point, it was just so emotional. And uh, I knew what it meant to so many people and, and was so proud of the team and, and, uh, and happy for the city. And then, and then the, first, the first home playoff game was something special. And I remember walking into the rink and, to see all the people and they were so excited to see a playoff game. And, uh, and uh, we, we really should have won that fourth game uh, or, or we were very close in the fourth game. You might remember we took too many men on the ice penalty with about a minute left or, and they scored. Uh, Detroit was clearly the better team, but it sure would have been nice to win a game right. here and feel the emotion. Uh, too many men on Freddie Modine. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. A good call or no? You can say now. Ah. Uh, Debatable. I, I, I don't, I didn't, I don't really have a problem with the call. He did jump yeah. on the ice and then he tried to get off. And right. I guess by the book, it's you know, sometimes they let that go and sometimes they call it and they decide right. to call it. Yeah. Um, I the one thing I remember about that Chicago win was when the players celebrated with the point you mentioned at regulation that clinched it for them. Was the Blackhawks tapping their sticks on the wall as well? Yeah, I remember that too. That was a, In, a great sign of respect, and they knew they knew how much it meant. I mean, yes. I mean, Columbus was the punching bag for yep. eight, nine years, right? And right. and there we were. We were finally, you know, took a small step towards respectability. Yeah. Do you have so that those are the highlights? Do you have a specific regret? A specific oh, Scott. I mean, everyone has them. It's the nature of that job. 
some trades are great. Some trades don't work out. Some draft picks are phenomenal. Some don't work out. Is there one thing you can you can you point to, or a couple of things where you go, oh my God, that's where it turned, or I wish I would have, I wish this would have gone differently? Yeah, I, I'm not one to go back. I know when you're in the general manager position, you're going to make some bad trades, and mm-hmm. and you're going to make some decisions that just don't work out. And and I don't think there's any general manager in the history of sports that has the spotless record. Um, you try and do more, more good than bad. I guess the one thing that still bothers me is how the whole Rick Nash situation put, played out. It got messy. Uh, it got ugly. I'm not sure uh, that it was, uh, you know, it was anyone's fault, but I wish we could have found a way to handle that a little differently. Yeah. Have you talked to Rick since? Oh yeah. Many times. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. 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 I just wish not that he, not that I don't regret trading him. I thought we made a great trade. I'm so proud of that trade. Uh, and, 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 and because we were forced, you, you remember we were, we, we were forced a little bit and we only had a few teams to deal with. And I was really happy with the process that we went through with, with Chris McFarland and, and Josh Flynn. And I knew at the end of the day, I think we traded them July um, after four or five months of, of trying to get the best deal. I knew that was the best deal. And we had two choices either to make the deal or to wait and, and deal with the ugliness in, in training camp. Right. And, uh, and so I don't regret the trade. I just wish that we could have, it didn't get so ugly publicly and, mm-hmm. uh, and we could have handled it better and Rick deserved better. Yeah. I remember you uh, taking a ton of crap um, from around the league from people saying, who does this guy think he is with these demands for Rick Nash? He should take the best deal he can get right now and, and just live with it. And you, you held on to him for quite a while and took some grief for it. And you benefited greatly from, from waiting it out, did you not? I think we did, yes. Um, yeah. that, that trade wasn't there earlier. It was, there was a semblance of that trade there at the draft in, in late June, but it wasn't quite there yet. And I wanted to find out if I could do better. Uh, yeah. You know, as you guys know, there's all these trigger points. There was a trade deadline trigger point, and then there's a draft trigger point. There's a little bit of a trigger point of free agency. And we got through all those. And free agency was really quiet with respect to Rick, from what I remember. Um, and, uh, and then finally, you know, it was really quiet. And then Glenn and I talked sometime in, in July, and, uh, and the deal was done pretty well the next morning. So um, I, I was, uh, you know... I, I think we benefited from waiting, but it also gave me, as I said, it gave me the knowledge and the comfort. This is the best we're going to do. And, uh, and, and we liked the deal, uh, uh, getting Brandon and uh, Artem were, 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 they were good players and they finally shored up our hole in the middle. Um, and, uh, the other two, the other two pieces didn't work out, but we got two really good NHL players. out of Scott, you mentioned this earlier and I, and I know that, you're not one to take credit at where an organization goes is, is a sum of so many parts, but that summer was, if, when you look back on that summer now, I mean, the, the foundational pieces that you brought in, not just Dubinsky, but Felino, Bobrovsky, how do you look back on that summer now? Because I don't think people understood at the time how significant that summer was going to end up being for this organization. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, Nick has been a mainstay here for a long time as the captain, obviously. So that was, 
that turned out to be a great trade. I thought it was a very even trade at the time, Allison. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were getting a very good defenseman and, and, and we were getting sort of a forward that uh, we needed a forward, uh, but, uh, you know, he hadn't reached his potential yet. And, uh, and I think Mark would still be playing. Mark, I thought, would still be playing right now if he didn't get hurt. He, I think he had back problems. So mm-hmm. I thought that was a really good trade for both teams. And it turned out, I guess, to be better for the Blue Jackets because Nick is still here and he's the captain. He's a huge piece of the team and the, and the fabric of the community and all those wonderful things he does, does off the ice. Uh, obviously, getting Bobrovsky was, was a huge, uh, huge coup for us. Um, but I can tell you, I mean, we went into that that situation we had another goalie pegged ahead of uh, Sergei which uh and it was Anders Lindback from Nashville mm. the, he was a backup Sergei was a backup and uh our people thought and we all thought that Lindback was was the guy we should go after we tried to go after him and uh they wouldn't trade him Nashville wouldn't trade him because uh I think that David didn't want to trade him in the division he was a highly touted guy so he traded him to Tampa Bay and we were bound and determined not to leave the draft without trying to do something with our goaltending. We liked, uh, we liked uh, Sergey, and, uh, and I think we beat out one or two teams. I know Carolina was hot after Sergey at the draft and had made a very, uh, a very similar offer to us. But again, Paul Holmgren, who was the GM with Philly at the time, probably didn't really want to send him east. So he traded him to us. And, and he, you know, you talk about, Sergey Bobrovsky, Jack Johnson, Brandon Dubensky, they changed the competitiveness of our team. Mm-hmm. I have never seen a player work, and Aaron, you probably know this uh, because you've been around him a long time. I've never seen a player work like Sergey Bobrovsky off the mm-hmm. ice. No. Uh, he was so dedicated to his craft, and, uh, and, and, and his attitude was so impressive uh, about stopping pucks. He, he would – he just said to me, my job is to stop the puck. I don't care what happens in front of me. I don't care how many mistakes are made. If I don't stop the puck, it's my fault. And to have that type of attitude, um, and, and, and then Jack Johnson coming in too with, with his work ethic off the ice. And I mean, he'd be in after games, pounding weights. Uh, so I think, I think they just raised the competitive level of the team. And uh, I think that that's, part of what you see now with the Blue Jackets is that they've always, since that day, really, since that, that summer, they've been a really, really competitive team. You don't get many easy games against the Columbus Blue Jackets. Yeah, Philly fans still just almost cry over that Bobrovsky trade. <laughs> <laughs> there is a saying, you know, that you, you, you can't evaluate a trade post-trade. You have to evaluate it for how the value was perceived and valued at the time of the trade. Do, yeah. Does that summer exceed what you thought was going to come out of it? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would say there's no doubt about that. I mean, to, to trade for a player that wins two of Esnes, um, <laughs> I mean, it's just, I mean, that's, that's remarkable. And, uh, and uh, you know, our staff did a lot of work, and it just shows you that, you know, that you, you've got to be flexible and you've got to move from one thing to another. And, and hey, evaluating players is not easy. And we all make mistakes and you don't know how a player is going to uh, thrive in, in a certain situation. And we were lucky that Sergey came here and, uh, and took his game way up. Is it true though, the saying that you shouldn't do that, that trade should not be evaluated in hindsight. Is that your opinion? Well, I think, I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I think I, 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 here's my opinion. I think you've got to take some time to see what the trade looks like. 
and how they play. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think I got criticized a little bit by giving up too much for <laughs> Sergey. I think we gave up, uh, I forget what we gave up. I think we gave up two seconds or no, a second. And Aaron, you might, might remember. Uh, yeah. Like a second and two thirds or something. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. So there were, I think there were three pieces and uh, a lot of people thought I gave up too much or we gave up too much. So uh, I think you've got to wait. And, and it's the same thing with drafts, right? We walk out of the draft and, and uh, there's a lot of people that want to analyze drafts and man, they <laughs> oh, take right. five years. <laughs> <laughs> what I think it's really hypocritical. Like I loved the Jeff Carter trade. Loved it. Like it made perfect sense. Right. And I think, I think if you love it coming, you can't then two years later, uh, I mean, you could say if it worked out or if it didn't work out, but to blast the decision to make the trade two years later, seems a little a touch hypocritical. Um, Scott, changing the subject a bit here. You are a huge Cincinnati Reds fan. I am. Yes. I knew I was going to get along with you when I found that out shortly after your hiring. Um, how does this happen that a young Toronto lad becomes a, of all things, a Cincinnati Reds fan? Well, I think to the best of my memory, I've tried to jog my memory on this and, and I think it goes back to the big red machine. And I had, I, 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 I loved baseball. You, you could say that when I was 10 or 11 or 12, um, I liked baseball better than hockey. Um, and so there wasn't a lot of baseball in Toronto at the time, not high level baseball. Sure. And I had a couple of friends that uh, that were older than me that that loved baseball just as much as I did, and so we'd hang around and play a lot in the summers. And uh, I remember my friend was a Cincinnati Reds fan, and um, so I, somehow I, I guess I got attached to the Reds, the Big Red Machine, and I still have fond fond memories of uh, of. And you and I have talked about this, Aaron, of uh, of getting Marty Brenneman, if you can believe this, on my kitchen stereo in Toronto late at night. Uh, and it would fade in and out and listening yes. to, to the Reds. And I would stay up till 11, 12, 1 o'clock, even when they're on the West Coast sometimes, I'd stay up and listen. Yeah. And, uh, and I, was, I, just, I just loved the Reds. I thought I was the only person in the world that figured out the transistor radio under the pillow. Correct? <laughs> so your parents? No, there are many millions of us that used to do that. Yeah. Um, isn't it going to be strange? It's strange not to have baseball now. Here we are in mid-May. Um, it's going to be strange to hear the Reds radio play-by-play uh, -play from a voice of, other than Marty Brenneman, who has always been there. He's just always been uh, in my ear with the Cincinnati Reds since the mid-70s. Um, you loved Marty Brenneman. How odd is that going to be for you? Yeah, I mean, there's, there are... I think there are two magical voices in my life and, and one is Marty Brenneman because he brings me back to the childhood. And I, I think when Marty announced his retirement last year, we saw a lot of articles and, and media interviews that people, you know, he was the, the voice of our lives type of thing. Right. And, and he was always in the background and, and he's a magical voice for me. And the other magical voice that you guys won't know is, is uh, Paul Morris was the PA announcer at Maple Leaf Gardens. Okay. And, uh, and I remember when I, when I graduated and I played junior hockey and, uh, and we played, I played for Kingston, which is about uh, two and a half hours east of Toronto. And when we would come in to play the Marlies uh, in Maple Leaf Gardens and Paul Morris was the PA announcer. And when he announced my name uh, after I scored or got an assist at Maple Leaf Gardens, I thought that was the greatest thing in the world. Wow. So 
Marty is Marty and Paul Morris are two my two voices that are sort of magical for me. That's awesome. And Paul Morris is still with us, right? I don't I don't think he is. Oh, okay. uh, but I don't know. I don't know. I, I thought he would still would show up at the odd Maple Leafs game until in recent years. But yeah, he, he might, he might. And he was, he was the old school announcer, right? That didn't, he just announced the names. He didn't yeah. put any, uh, didn't try and, uh, you know, put any emphasis on any syllables or anything like that. But it was just, uh, you know, Maple Leaf Gardens was a, a magical place. And, uh, you know, growing up and aspiring to play in the NHL, um, and to go down to Leaf games, you'd go down to Leaf games with your father on a Saturday night, and everybody would be a suit and a tie, and yes, you'd right. have to get dressed up. And uh, that's awesome. it, would, it was it was a great it's a great memory. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, I think it's interesting that that the uh, future AHL president Scott Housen currently lives in the same city as the current and longtime International League president. So. The AAA baseball, AAA hockey, the presidents of each live in Columbus, Ohio. Randy Mobley lives in, in Columbus. The IL offices, I believe, are in Dublin. Have you had a chance to talk to Randy? Do you have any interest in speaking to Randy? Are there any correlations between the two leagues that you could possibly learn from each other, share um, experiences? Is there a, a growth potential there, just personal growth potential from, from you communicating with another Columbus resident who happens to have a similar job? Yeah, I, I think there probably is. I think there are certainly different structures and, yeah. uh, and, and uh, the jobs are different for sure. But to know, uh, you know, and, and we've, we've done, I know the AHL has done some independent studying on, on what other minor league sports are doing. And, and obviously baseball's the biggest one. Um, and I saw Randy being interviewed, uh, I think on, uh, on television a, a few weeks ago. So yeah, there'd be, there'd be some, uh, things that we could talk about and probably learn from each other. Um, I think we are in a different place and what minor league baseball is going through right now. I mean, yes. holy, I mean, they don't have a season and they're trying to get a new agreement. And uh, from what I read anyways, you guys probably know better. Uh, they're trying to really reduce the streamline, the operations and it, it, right. The, the negotiation has become public and a little bit nasty. So uh, I'm sure that they're going through uh, lots of upheaval, upheaval right now. Yeah. Randy's probably quite busy. Yeah. Probably quite busy. Yeah. Uh, well, Scott, thanks so much for your time. This has been a blast. I'm, I'm glad you were able to join us. Well, thank you for having me. And uh, hopefully we can do it again when I get in the seat uh, and, and we have some hockey in the American Hockey League. That would be great. That would be great. I would look forward to it. Thanks again for your time. We'll uh, stay in touch and talk to you soon. Thanks, okay, Scott. Thank you. See you, Allison.